So two acquisitions locally, uh, did you ever think you were going to have a team of people that were under you when you started down this road? I had no idea. Uh, all I knew is that I didn't want to get fired. I had $50,000 of debt. I had to figure out how to get out of it. And I thought that real estate could maybe someday be the way that I did it. That's all I knew. I, I had nothing. I, I had no cash, 50 grand of debt. And I... Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Real Estate Law Podcast. Jason Muth here with straightforward short-term rentals and Pride Away Stays. Rory Gill, our resident attorney and broker, is here as well. Rory, we're going to be speaking with an investor out of Pennsylvania today. We're going to learn a lot about the ins and outs of all of those marketing pieces that we get from those cash buyers that are out there. I get them all the time, you know, postcards, letters, phone calls. Uh, buy my house. Uh, I have a cash offer for you. Uh, you know, we have a list of people that need to buy properties. And, you know, we found somebody that can kind of dig into like the other side of the curtain there. I know that we see them all the time. Um, but I don't think everybody who's listening understands the processes that go into uh, investors that are working in this manner, um, you know, purchasing cash properties uh, or working through, you know, some other types of, um, to, to financing to get these properties and all the marketing that goes into it. Yep. And it's been a challenging market for everybody in all aspects of real estate um, for the past year, past year and a half. And if you are looking to streamline your operations, maximize your marketing, um, or just find a way to stand out in this challenging market, um, I think today's guest is going to have some good pointers for you. Let's welcome Matt Pizon to the show. Matt is with Pizon Properties out of Pennsylvania. Lots of peas there. Welcome, Matt. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Now, where in Pennsylvania are you? You're Eastern Pennsylvania, right? That's right. So the uh, Lehigh Valley, um, it, I live in Eastern Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I know the area pretty well. I was in Central Jersey for a couple of years of my life, a couple of decades ago. Um, but you know that whole, I was taking a look at your service area and it's a lot of the towns that seem to surround uh, Pennsylvania, like Conshohocken and Ben Salem, Allentown. Um, it's a great part of the country. Uh, it's a very important part of the country politically as well. We see a lot about P Pennsylvania during all the elections, and you know this is coming out during an election year. So lots of responsibility on your shoulders uh, to help guide the country. Um, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with uh, becoming a real estate investor? And then we have a long list of questions about how uh, how how the machine works. Sure thing. So I never wanted to or realized that I wanted to get into real estate. So I'm from the fourth generation of uh, engineers, and I'm a trained chemical engineer. I left that that business, uh, but uh, I knew that I needed to get out of the corporate ladder back in 2010. I started a, an engineering job and there were really no jobs at that time, different from today, but I got one and I was in an IT role. And my first boss for this big chemical company, you know, there were no processes, procedures. And he told me I was the worst employee he ever had. <laughs> the company should fire me. And I, it was hard at the time because I had 50 grand of debt and I realized I needed to find another way. And, uh, uh, but I, I still kept working in that job. Then I went to business school. I learned about entrepreneurship. I did a Fulbright scholarship and I found real estate at business school, actually out of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I knew that once I got back to the States, I wanted to buy. And then I did. So I started in 2014. I knew that I wanted to get out of my corporate job. It took me almost 10 years, but I finally did it. <laughs> so yeah. that's the, the high level summary. 
you had a kick in the pants by a boss that was a little gruff, said the worst employee he's ever had. I've never heard someone say that to somebody. Yep. That's what he told me. And uh, he was right because I wasn't destined to be an employee for long and uh, do my full career like him. So, um, and nothing against employment. It's very important, but uh, I was the worst he had and I, I probably still am. So, <laughs> so you went, you got a Fulbright scholarship. You studied where outside the country, you said? In Spain. Yep. Wow. You yep, speak at- Spanish? I actually, I did my MBA. So it's a master's in international management, very similar to an MBA there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did it all in Spanish. So every negotiation, every test, every presentation, mm-hmm. class, everything. So I turned off the English switch for a year. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, did you know Spanish going into that? Decently well enough to qualify. Um, yeah. I had studied, I, it was always one of my life goals to be bilingual. And so I, I passed everything. And uh, was proficient enough. But once I left, I was 10 times better than when I went in for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then that that found your way back to the United States where you found real estate um, as a way beyond you know that W-2 job. And you, you've built up piece on properties. And I saw online that you have a couple hundred doors. Is that, is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. No investors, um, no partners, anything like that. Just my wife and me. Wow. Um, Talk about the beginning and and how you started getting a couple of those initial deals and how it's different from today, from how you're finding your deals. Sure. Um, when I was starting for those initial deals, it was very education heavy. And I, I met with a group of investors that would locally go around to the different properties on weekends and see them. And I looked at at least a hundred properties before I bought one. And that was because I got involved with the right group going to see properties. And I, I really focused on education and so it was very uh, time and learning intensive in the beginning to hit that learning curve. I spent years learning before I bought. And, but now I have a, a, a team, two acquisition managers locally and a support staff of six in the Philippines and myself. And now we have processes and systems, software. Uh, we have really detailed procedures on what we do, uh, process maps. And so it's completely different than what I started with 10 years ago. Um, so two acquisitions locally, uh, did you ever think you were going to have a team of people that were under you when you started down this road? I had no idea. Uh, All I knew is that I didn't want to get fired. I had $50,000 of debt. I had to figure out how to get out of it. And I thought that real estate could maybe someday be the way that I did it. That's Mm -hmm. all I knew. I I had nothing. I, I had no cash, 50 grand of debt. And I, I just was looking for a way out. You know, getting into some of the nitty gritty there for somebody who's looking to just get started, how did you finance the first couple of deals if you're in, you know, had that financial profile? Right. So that was when I was in college. Then when I came back from my MBA, um, I had mostly paid off almost all of the debt, but I had a car free and clear. So I refinanced the car. I think I got 10 grand from that. And then rates were so low, I think I paid like, 175 bucks a month or something. It was so low. Then I really disciplined myself. I was living in a friend's basement, paying like 300 bucks a month in rent. I was eating like ramen noodles and rice and beans. Like I'm not recommending any of those things, but that's what I did for about a year. And I was going around looking at these properties, maybe nine months. And after that time, I had accumulated enough capital. I think I had maybe $25,000. 
um, after about nine months of work and spending nothing. And then I was able to put down 20% or actually it was 15% on a single family rental property worth 60 grand at the time. Um, and then it was, it appraised for 70. And then six months later, I refinanced it and got all my cash back so I could buy the next one. Mm-hmm. And that was the key, just finding a good deal. Um, that's what allowed me to, to grow. But I had to get that initial cash first to buy. Otherwise, I was unbankable. Yeah. You know, so that, that pattern of um, buying a property, um, forcing some appreciation, then pulling your money out um, relatively quickly um, with low interest rates seems to be something that was a featured attraction in the, the mid-20-teens. Um, is that something that could still be replicated today with today's uh, lower inventory and higher interest rates? I'm glad you brought that up because over the last 18 months, I've seen a shift in my business in that I'm not able to cash out refinance anymore uh, to the extent that I was. And there's a lot of equity trapped in the properties that exists, but I can't get it by refinancing. So I have been a net seller of single family homes over the last 12 to 16 months for that very reason. Uh, But the cash is there. It's just that instead of refinancing it and keeping the asset I'm selling and buying a new asset. Uh, and so I might sell one single family and buy three with it, but under mm-hmm. again, always under value, which is where the marketing component comes in and the cash buying component comes in because I can find those deals and transfer from one house to three. Um, mm-hmm. I do have to dispose of that. I have to sell it. There's a disposition, but um, it's the, the model still works. It's just not a refinance that gets me there. It's a sale. I mean, and what's striking about your evolution is that, you know, you started, um, you know, doing everything you can, can could to get into that first property and doing the refinances. And then your situation in the market have changed to the point where what you do today is a really involved um, and complicated um, system of both marketing and management. Um, tell us a little bit about that evolution. What was it like to kind of pivot from this first couple of properties um, into really building a system that could replicate this and grow exponentially? Sure. The first hundred or so units were solopreneur while I was working a full-time job. In fact, even up to 150 units Um, so I was doing everything on the sales financing and closing the deal side. I had a third party manager that I still work with. In fact, I work with three and they handle everything after closing. Cause once we close, I don't want to deal with it anymore. Like just manage it, right? Like it pays for itself, just manage it. So I worked through third party managers and, um, up to the first uh, 150 or so units, I was the face of the company, taking all the calls, going on all the appointments, uh, doing the financing packages, all of all of that. And uh, um, now I have a team that does that, but it, I've really accumulated the knowledge to build the foundation for those systems because you can't build a system if you don't know what to build. <laughs> so I had to really learn first so that I could teach others. So you're building the system for those first 150 units for acquisition. What are some of the things that you did along the way to find those properties? Oh, a lot of things. The first thing that I did was I hand wrote 600 letters myself and hand addressed them. My wife helped. I would never do that again. <laughs> that took a long time. and uh, But I got a great response. It just took a long time. 
And now I have three kids under three. There's no way I could go back to that. So um, after handwriting the letters, and it was all letter-based, I had, when I worked a full-time job, there was no website, no Google ads, no digital marketing, nothing, because I didn't want to be perceived as a real estate investor because you know, there, there are subconscious, you know, I, I didn't want to get passed up for promotions or have my boss think I'm not putting in a good amount of effort to my job. And I got great ratings. They didn't need to know what I was doing in my spare time. So I was sending letters and, uh, that, that was it. Um, then I bought a printer. <laughs> I brought like a brother seven, seven sixty something, um, printer and was just ripping letters and I was folding them. And then I hired, so I did that for a few years. I would fold them on nights and weekends and send them. And we got like color coordinated ones for different times of year. Like, you know, holidays was like green and red. And then, you know, springtime was like, you know, pastel green. So we kind of did some stuff like that with stamps. Then, um, then I started hiring someone to do that for me out of Arkansas and she would ship or Alabama and she would ship the letters up to me. And now I work with a printing company through our CRM. And so now we just use Excel lists and the letters just get sent automatically. So it was definitely a progression of letters um, mm-hmm. over the last 10 years, but mostly letters. So direct mail, you know, which has been a tried and true method for many, many years and a method that I used to sell against when I worked in the media business, because we would always try to, you know, dissuade people from putting all their money into direct mail and moving into digital or traditional TV or radio uh, saying, oh, you know, the letters never make it inside. They end up in the recycle bin, you know, right next to the mailbox. But, you know, response rate for direct mail only needs to be like a 1% response rate, if that, for it to be even successful. So did you go into it, you know, with a game of quantity where you knew that if you sent out a thousand letters, you know, you should get 10 responses from those? I did know that. I understood that. And um, I, did a quick little spreadsheet from my engineering background. And I said, what's it's going to cost? What do I think the spread on the deal will be? How much do I have to spend to get that deal? And do I want to do that? Mm-hmm. And the answer was yes. So, and I just found that I was able to manage the sellers, talk through them, solve their problems, um, buy the properties at a discount to help out the seller or the situation. And it was worth it. I just did a quick yeah. little calculation and said, yes, let's do it. Can we talk about some of the nitty gritty about actually what was sent out in those letters? So either the handwritten ones or you've you've moved over into kind of using a mailhouse or direct mail business right now. So you've identified it either as a better use of your time or the success rate is probably just as good as writing handwritten letters out. You know, you can kind of go into that in a second. But um, what are you putting in these letters? You know, are they postcards? Are they letters that you're folding up? You know, you did mention folding, but I'm sure you're sending out a number of letters to people. Um, and then what are what is the call to action? What are you asking people to do once they receive your letter? Right. So we have different pieces now that we use. We use postcards um, for uh, delinquent taxes, delinquent mortgages. We send them out right after filings occur, but they're just very simple. And And letters is primarily what we send. But they're very simple. Now, hi, my name's Matt Pizon with Pizon Properties. I'd like to buy your house at address. We we close cash in fourteen, you know, in as fast as fourteen days. Please call us. We'd love to make an offer. That's mm-hmm. it. There's nothing to it. <laughs> Just so then very, they make very a, simple. They make, yeah. they make a phone call, and are you picking the phone up, or it's one of your acquisition managers or your team in the Philippines? 
Right. And, and we also put our QR code on there um, for our website and we're going to start TV and then we're going to put a snapshot like as seen on TV mm-hmm. um, on there. But the call to action is, hey, call us. And then my lead intake coordinators in the Philippines pick up the phone and they just ask you know, eight simple questions or 10 and see where, you know, is the, is, is this a warm transfer type opportunity to our acquisitions manager? Or do I just, oh no, they want to be removed from the list or, okay, maybe I'll call them back in two months and I'll keep this lead. So they kind of pre-vet the lead for the acquisition manager. And then the acquisition manager builds the relationship, goes on the appointment and makes an offer. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about those components too. Let's talk about how you built your team in the Philippines. Sure. So I didn't know that was possible. Um, I didn't realize that was something that could be done. (laughs) I was at a mastermind event last August and folks were talking about virtual lead managers and also my, um, my mentor that I work with on my CRM. Um, she's very successful and, um, she mentioned it to me. They have virtual lead managers and I didn't know what that was. So I thought, well, why don't I look into this? So there are various companies, apparently, um, I found out that provide call center services and, um, which was great because I wasn't able to call sellers back. I wasn't able to answer the phones. I was at work. Um, and, um, there are various companies that do this. They're answering services and I hired a couple, they didn't work out. I didn't like the quality. And I finally settled on one group and I've been pretty happy with them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, with with virtual assistants, you know, we work with a couple at this point, and I've learned that the uh, the the better information that you give, the better inputs, the better explanations, like the better results that you'll get. You know, we um, we record Loom videos sometimes to kind of walk through a process, or you know, we really kind of lay things out step by step by step. Um, and so far, so good. I mean, like, you know, we've kind of thrown a number of different projects, both related to this podcast and related to our business, um, at our team offshore, and we've been getting some pretty good results. It's, and I think that's, yeah, that's you great. know, Congrats. it's, and as Matt alluded to earlier, that's why doing a lot of these things yourself at, at first is actually a really strong positive because you now can give instructions and insight on those tasks. Whereas if you adopted the mentality that you have to have all these assistants from day one, you may not have the experience to give them the instructions on what they should be doing. Well, that's right. And the it's like any team, any leadership activity, you do need to, you don't need to be in the trenches every day, um, but you do need to understand where we need to dig and where we need to go and how do we do this. And that way you can coach and lead. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you don't have the skills to begin with, how how could you expect other some someone else to? So that's, uh, you don't have to do everything forever by yourself, but you do need to have enough competency in that skill to coach and train. So, nope. you know, hearing your story, it sounds like everything has gone right all the time and you've never made any mistakes. Um, I've made that, no mistakes and it's only been positive. No, no issues. Life is good. Okay. No, I've, so no, I've made we every have mistake no good stories to tell. Yeah. I've made every mistake. <laughs> Could you tell us about, you know, some of that, some of the, the, the bumps along the way and some of the lessons that, you know, that came from them? I mean, there's so many, um, allowing the wrong resident to live in the property, not providing clear instructions to my team, um, not managing projects and contractor activities. Well, um, making mistakes for 
loans, loan documents that I've submitted where I should have asked for more money, but I didn't, you know, th- I've made every mistake. I mean, I've had fires, sinkholes, you know, people, mm-hmm. unfortunately, someone got shot at one of the properties. Like, it's just, you see so much in this business and uh, there's just so many mistakes. <laughs> and, you know, but you had a team of people that you'd hired as property managers, you know, early on. So those mm-hmm. mistakes would be things that they would be dealing with, right? Oh, that that's a great question. And they would, except when you hire the wrong property manager, which I also did. So, um, you know, I, I hired the, the three poor performance property managers before I realized how to hire property managers and how to see who's sophisticated, who knows what they're doing, who doesn't know what they're doing, and how do you tell just by asking the right questions. Um, so I've hired all the wrong vendors for all the wrong roles, and uh, it's just part of the business and cutting your teeth. What's a way that you could identify that you've hired the wrong vendor, like when you've done it? Like, does it happen early in the process or somewhere along the way? Well, it starts first with you as the business owner. So do you understand how to hire that vendor correctly? Do I know what to ask? So if we use a a contractor example, um, am I setting clear expectations up front? So what I mean by that is, so how would I know if I hired the wrong contractor? Well, if we... It, first of all, if they can't provide insurance or their license information, you know that's a question I needed to ask. I didn't always ask that question. I didn't know. Um, or was I clear on the draw schedule? Was I tr- clear on the schedule? Was I clear on the penalty for going over the schedule? Was I clear on the quality of work that I expect? Are we clear on when the draws are to be paid? All these things I didn't know to ask. So it, one, it starts with me or, or, or the, the owner. Uh, are, was I educated enough to ask those questions? The answer was no. <laughs> and then two, when a contractor is asking for something that's not typical or not professional, such, you know, could you give me 50% down? No, because he's taking the deposit to finish the last job that he took the deposit from the last guy to finish that job. And, you know, so all these, all these things that um, you just have to know what's customary in the industry to know who is pulling the wool over your eyes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to learn that while you're actually doing it. You know, this obviously right. people educate themselves by listening to podcasts like this and reading investor books. Um, you know, something you said early on is that you looked at a hundred properties before you really, um, you know, jumped into one of them. You could have very well fallen victim to being the person that just kind of analyzes forever and does nothing, which I think, you know, is something that a lot of real estate investors, you know, that are really eager to get into the game, they have a hard time overcoming that. You know, they're just looking and looking and looking and looking, and then they just eventually give up. Um, so, so why do you think that didn't happen for you? Well, I my my natural tendencies are to analyze forever and see the downside in everything um, because that's my engineering training. You know, you design with safety, and then you add a safety factor on a safety factor, right? And I was the same thing with my look at the spreadsheets and. Well, what if they don't pay for a year? Well, you know, and then all of a sudden you're not doing ever, any deal at all, right? So fortunately, I was involved with a group of people. They said, hey, this is a really good deal. If you'll pass on it, we'll do it. But we want to give you the first opportunity because it's a good deal. And I kind of was scared, but I said, okay, like, let's do it. And I had all the normal feel- fears. I had saved up for nine months, tw- 10 mm-hmm. months. And wow, what if this is, what if this goes bad? And now I'm out of money. And so all those fears are real, but you have to know, you have to have seen enough deals 
to separate the bad ones from the average ones from the good ones and do the good ones, especially in the beginning. Mm -hmm. A bad deal in the beginning will break you, but um, a good one will catapult you. You sound like an attorney, you know, always looking for like the the problems in uh, a deal or a contract uh, and, and sometimes holding people back from the path of progress. It's a balance. You have to, you have to hope for the best and plan for the worst and you have to, but you can't let those two things stop you. You have to move forward, but for the right deal and you have to be educated to do the right deal. Um, but you always have to mitigate that risk. The, mm -hmm. you have to, you have to survive to fight another day and you, you can't, um, you can't be without knowledge of what the risks are. And, you know, just kind of shifting it to today's market, I know that a few years ago, you know, with an attorney background, it was always my job to look at any sort of deal proposal and say what's wrong with this and why we can't do it. And I, you know, that attitude was easy enough a few years ago. I think it's even easier now to um, to turn down every deal, you know, with higher interest rates, with tighter inventory, with um, you know, with kind of the 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 developments of the past few years. What if somebody was just entering the market now? What should they be looking out for and where should they be finding that first deal? Yeah, it's it's the the marketing and direct to seller activities that the investor or prospective investor is taking. It's quite difficult, as you said, to go on the MLS or Crexy or wherever and say, okay, I'm going to vet all these deals and um and make offers because the numbers just they they don't they don't pencil out. So I recommend direct to seller communications, which I've been doing for ten years, and it's it's worked. And and uh, that's that's the best way. Just just reach out and start conversations with folks. Let's talk about some of those conversations because when you get somebody on the phone, they've received your mailers and they actually pick up the phone and make that phone call. Like what why are they calling you? You know, you're probably vetting them early on in that phone call, just trying to figure out their pain points, but. Um, what, what is that conversation kind of like? Like what are some bigger trends you're seeing these days? Well, sure. Um, first, first things first, we focus on building trust and that likability factor. So we just want them to know, Hey, Oh, thank you for, for calling us back from our letter. You know, we we're we're investors. We own property near you. Um, and we always say that because we want folks to feel, and it's true because we own property all over in like eight counties. So we're pretty local to them and they want to, our tagline is your neighbors. So we want, we believe the best selling experience is with someone who already is invested in your community, not some out of state or out of area investor. So we kind of build that trust and we very quickly in a few sentences convey that messaging. And then we just ask them, so, you know, thanks for calling in. Um, you know, you want to like, where, where are you at with this property? Are you thinking about selling or just curious about the letter? And then we just take their temperature and see how they respond and let the conversation flow. Um, just a couple quick, like, what's the condition? When do you want to sell? Why are you looking to sell? Just very simple things. And over time, we've developed a whole list of phrases and things that people say that, okay, they're not motivated or they're very motivated. And I've recorded all those things and uh, my, my virtual team knows what they are and then they do a warm transfer or they just like mark the lead as dead, right? So it's, you just, uh, you can pretty quickly tell if someone's interested in selling or not. Mm -hmm. 
Is this something that you think somebody could ramp up? Like who's listening to this podcast right now? Maybe they've been laid off or they want to get out of their job and they've heard that real estate investing is something that they could be doing. Um, you know, this this podcast is, you know, going to be out in 2024 and um, you know, the economy is is different every single year. But, you know, we're coming out of a period of really high interest rates where things are ticking down right now. You know, by the time people listen to this, who knows where they're going to be. Um, is this an infrastructure that somebody can set up today or like, are they too late to the game? Oh, never too late to the game. It, it can definitely be set up. Um, having said that, it is not as like, if, if you go online and you look at a, what's the 10 step process for building a, a real estate investing company or going direct to seller, you're going to see these bullet points and it seems so straightforward. Oh yeah. Just send letters, answer the phone, close the deal. What could be so hard about that? I mean, there, there are unique challenges to this market. You mentioned financing and rates, um, just that there are the inventory is tight, um, but it is absolutely attainable. Uh, I had no knowledge of real estate. I had no idea that I would even be in this business when I uh, was 22, 23, 24, 25. So it's, it's just something that uh, it, it can be built, but it requires education, drive, and determination. Mm-hmm. One thing I've been asking a lot of guests on this podcast recently is how AI is functioning into the work that you do. Um, have you integrated any AI tools into your daily workflow? And if so, uh, what are they? Oh, 100%. Um, we, we use AI a lot for different things. For generating, we're maturing past this phase, but for generating procedures. So just give me an HR uh, policy for uh, PTO. Right, like just asking Chat GPT that question, and then we of course tailor it to what we want. But you know, policies, procedures. Um, we also use AI for creating reels from podcasts like this, where it'll just go through, create a transcription, and actually um, populate on the reel what the words are, and then we just post it to social media. It's already synced with with Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff, X, and uh, so we we do it for reel creation and and just you know, for blog posts, uh, for SEO stuff. I mean, just so, so many things. Mm -hmm. Um, and my team in the Philippines does that. So stuff two, three years ago that would have taken like massive amounts of effort is now done in an instant. And it's really unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned earlier when you were still working, you didn't really want to have this public persona because you were, um, concerned that your employers would say, well, wait a second, are you doing this or are you doing that? Right. Um, I could, I could relate to that also. You know, I never really had the sense that my employer was going to say, why are you doing all this other stuff on the side? Um, but I was cognizant of it. And I think that a lot of people that are listening that are trying to build up that, that, that plan B or that next chapter in their career are probably saying, well, what is my employer going to think if they see me all over social media talking about this, but I, I work in this other job. Um, so, you know, comment about what somebody could do today to bridge that gap. If they're looking to take that transition, do you recommend a completely silent approach, you know, like can't find you online when you're trying to build this business or do you, you know, what, what do you think people should do? So I took the completely silent route completely silent. Cards were close to my chest, very close, right? And I I went so far as to put the people that I knew at work on the do not mail list, like their names so that our Excel files would scrub them out, like just in case, you know, mailing addresses. But my fear was someone was going to bring in a letter one day that said, what's this, right? Because I was sending out a thousand letters a month or so at the time. 
So what can someone else do? Um, I, I knew for my situation that my value add was the W-2 salary for getting cash out refinances from the banks. I was crystal clear on that. I could scale this business very fast and far because of my W-2 salary. Because of that, I was not willing to risk having an online persona. I knew that I could go direct to seller under the radar. Online was a liability. Now, someone might not have that situation for them. So then in that case, if someone has a manager or boss who's maybe understanding or maybe side hustles are encouraged or as a part of the culture, um, setting up a website just so it can start seasoning um, and Google can index it, find it, you know, maybe start some SEO on the side, doing some podcasting, um, things like that to build your brand on the side, always valuable. Um, I waited until I had moved on to start building my digital footprint. And I think it costs me in the end because uh, I, I wasn't really getting that good SEO traction and other things, but um, it's really up to, but it comes back to the financing. Is this decision to have a digital footprint going to jeopardize my W-2 income that will then jeopardize my financing? And if it is, don't do the digital stuff. It's just not worth mm-hmm. it. Wow. Haven't had that advice. Yeah. I haven't had that advice yet on the podcast, but we haven't really asked. And, you know, it's interesting to hear your perspective on it as someone that had that concern about people getting, you know, finding you too easily online and saying, wait a second, you know, I thought you worked for our company, not this other company. Right. Right. But Um, one thing we definitely talked about on this podcast, though, is the value of the W 2 job. I know it's in some circles, it's fashionable to say, just jump right in, um, you know, take the risk, but there is a real asset in having that W-2 job um, for a while and certainly in a concrete way in terms of financing, but stabilizing your finances while you start to take off uh, down your real estate path. The W-2 job is pretty valuable. A hundred percent. And it really depends on the individual investor and their tolerance for risk. I had always been risk averse. And so I knew that I could continue to get these cash out refinances and these loans, but there are national lenders and others that will do, they just look at the seasoning and and they will do cash out refinances, albeit at a lower LTV. So it, it really depends on the individual investor. But for me, um, I, I wanted that W-2 for a while for the refinancing. Um, Rory, any final thoughts uh, for Matt before we get to our final three questions? Well, I mean, this is an interesting story that um, in many ways is kind of the best case scenario for for a lot of people out there. Um, but it started with a lot of sacrifices, um, a lot of uh, calculated risk. Um, but I'm glad to see that um, not only have you been successful, but you've been able to kind of really evolve and change your systems and really kind of envision a bigger scale over time uh, that I'm sure provides you a much different lifestyle today um, than it did in the very beginning. Absolutely. And it it was certainly a progression. This was not an overnight. I mean, this was 10 years that, that it took, right? So, um, and any type of misstep along the way could have cut things short or other things. So it it's um it, it was just about seeing the long game and tracing back to how do I prevent myself from getting kicked out of the game and what's the risk? How do I how do I get rid of the risk? I could have gone faster and taken on investors and done all this other stuff, but I, I was I was always very careful. Mm-hmm. I always found that the interesting part about someone you know your age who started this, uh, who was working a great job, has degrees and whatnot, is the the worst case scenario is like you could always go back to work. 
right? Right, right. You know, if, right, it, if it doesn't right. work out, like you're, d- despite what call my former d- boss and I'll have a job in like a week. <laughs> well, not, not, not that first boss, right? Yeah. You know, despite, no, despite what, <laughs> the, despite yeah. the, uh, the lack of encouragement that they yeah. gave, you know, as, as a mentor to you, um, you know, you're probably very employable otherwise. And, you know, time is on the side of many, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, it doesn't matter what age you are. If you're in your forties or fifties, there's still time to do this. And hopefully you've built up some money, you know, along the way that you can either fall back on or use. But if you're in your, you know, twenties or early thirties listening to this, you know, what's the, the worst thing is going to happen? Go get a job, right? You know, and if if it doesn't work out, but you know, if you follow systems just like you've done in many situations, people can find their way to what the successful successful pathway is in the real estate investing world. Um, so with that, Matt, why don't we ask you the final three questions that we ask of all of our guests just to wrap up the interview and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, and then we'll, uh, you know, find out where people can find out more about you and put all that stuff in the show notes. Uh, first question, if you can get on stage for half an hour and talk about any subject in the world with as zero preparation, what would that be? Finance. So I, I, I could, I could talk about how to structure deals, get cash out, work with lenders. Um, it's just live and breathe it. Right. I mean, it's, it's the mortgages are the, the lifeblood of, of real estate and, and acquiring it. So I've, I've done over 200 loans and it's just, I could talk about it forever. Mm-hmm. Second question. Uh, tell us something happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you work today. Yeah, sure. I, I, I mentioned at the beginning that, that first boss, um, I would say, so when when I was I, I always had a drive, and so when I was when I was younger, my parents actually separated and got divorced, and so I've always had this drive to kind of prove myself or you know show my worth, and you know I can become something. So that w- that has definitely impacted me. Some of that's dissipated over time as I've kind of matured and, and let some of those hurt feelings from the past go, but um, that was definitely a driver for me to want to succeed so badly. Yeah, that's the motivator for you, and then you know as time goes on you know, like old wounds heal. Right. Yeah. And and maybe you've already proven to yourself, you know, that level of success. And you said, I don't have to keep proving it. I already proved it. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, to, so, so what, I'm just going to keep like pushing forever and and not enjoying and, and not, you know, I have, I have three kids now, like I kind of want to spend time with them and I don't want to be grinding forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> totally figure there. Yeah. We have, we yeah. have one and, you know, we want to spend time with her. Not all the time. Sometimes we need a little time to ourselves, but <laughs> you know, with oh, three, I don't know trust how you do me. It. Oh, you're, you're yeah. <laughs> preaching to the choir there. I get that. But I mean, I, I just, it, there's, I've come to a place where I've realized that I don't need to keep pushing forever that, you know, that, enough can be enough. And I still want mm-hmm. to grow and create an impact, but I've, I've transitioned more from trying to feel worth it to, uh, how can I impact my community? How can I help others educate others? You know, I do a lot of philanthropy and volunteer work and that that's more driving me now than just trying to feel like, uh, you know, I, I was worth it. Yeah. That is an interesting transition though, that people have a hard time making with their lives. Cause I think that we were all trained, you know, to go through college, maybe go through grad school, get a good job, work for 40 years and then retire and enjoy things. And, you know, it's come up a lot on this podcast, but people figure that out along the way. Sometimes that you don't have to work all those 40 years to, you know, be able to be uh, financially secure for your family and to be, you know, whole and happy with your lives. And, you know, this is a pathway that allows you to figure that out a little bit early on in the process. And and now in the world that I see around me, I'll see people in their 40s that have figured that out. And they are taking the steps to have a more flexible life and to enjoy their families, enjoy their own time uh, a little bit more than generations past. So, you know, I 
I strongly encourage people to continue looking at that. And, you know, if you are working in that job and don't like it, whatever that job is, um, you know, it's not as easy as just saying, just stop working and you'll be happy because <laughs> you have to plan for that. Um, but we all don't have to work till 65 these days. I just don't think we do. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. And and the work that I do now, um, it's, it's hard in that I have, I'm responsible for the, the financial well-being of my whole team, plus the sellers and getting them out of situation. So there's, there's responsibility, um, but it's not a traditional job where someone tells you what to do or you have to perform. Um, it's, it's a lot more responsibility because people's livelihoods are on the line. So, mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there is flexibility there where I could stop work at 4.30, sign on later so I can see my kids in the evenings instead of getting home from the office at 6.30 or whatever. So mm -hmm. there's pros and cons. Um, I think each person needs to evaluate for themselves. Final question. Tell us something you're listening to or watching or reading these days. Sure. Um, this book has been a game changer for me. Uh, Dan Martell's Buy Back Your Time. Mm -hmm. And it's the premise is about things that are repeatable and reproducible that you can delegate finding what your time is worth and really worth, not like faking it to yourself, but what, okay, what is my time worth if I'm working 2000 hours a year? How much, how much income is my business making net profit? And then what's the dollar amount that I could pay someone to do this task? And is it worth it for me to do it or for someone else? And when I really took a hard look at that, I, I found that I was doing a lot of things I shouldn't do in addition to the fact that we have three young children and I want to spend time with them. So, and what's the value of that? So I, I I've really been in, really doubling down on trying to figure out what should I really be doing and what should I hire someone to do and then train them and provide structure around that role. Yeah. Well said. Uh, lots of people are probably trying to find that balance. So we'll check that book out. Um, Me too. I'm trying to find it every day. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, Matt, thanks so much for all your insight on the podcast today. I know we really got into some of the nitty gritty, but you know, the overall picture that we would like to you know, paint if people are still listening to this episode is that you know, there is a pathway. It's different from what it used to be. Uh, you'll find some um, you know, bumps along the way with errors that you make, but the only way to improve that is probably to make those mistakes. Um, and you know, what works today is going to be different from what worked 10 years ago. So, you know, continue listening and evolving um, your mindset and being open to, you know, finding ways forward in the world of real estate investing. Because, you know, all, the only thing we know today is that it's going to be different from what's going to be in 10 years from now, too. Uh, so uh, thank you for all the insights. Really appreciate that. And we will link up your website and ways to get a hold of you uh, in the show notes of this podcast. Uh, and Rory will do the same for you. So RoryGill.com is where we could find information about Rory. Uh, JasonMuth.com is where you can find information about myself. Or if you want to be a guest in the podcast, uh, reach out to me there and we will get back to you. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, uh, we love five-star reviews and we read all your comments. So please go right ahead and do both those two things. Um, Rory, Matt, thank you. Thanks for all your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>